amazing. Thank you guys for coming up. I, uh, yeah, been a comic here in the uh, New England area for a while. I'm a former teacher. Hold your applause. I hate it too. <laughs> It's the Lord's work, but nobody seems to give a shit. Anyway, uh, yeah, 12 years uh, in a city, one of those hot teachers. Small program called A Couple Kids Left Behind. I took the two biggest cheaters in my class. I sat them next to each other during testing. I think they would sort of cancel each other out right there, right? Hey, what'd you get for number four? I don't know. What'd you get? I don't know. Hey, what do I put here? Your name. Oh, because I put your name accidentally. Life for business is all about people. This is Find Your Niche, our podcast series exploring stories behind untraditional life paths and novel business opportunities. I'm your host, Harry. I'm your host, Helen. For this episode, we are going to have some fun. Let's talk about stand-up comedy. It's a great pleasure to have my teacher, Dan Crow with us this time. I'm taking a stand-up comedy class at MIT. Dan's a professional comedian who has performed on television on Last Comic Standing, as well as in comedy clubs all over the country, including LA, New York, and Boston. Besides teaching at MIT, Dan also teaches stand-up at Improv Boston and is well-known among the stand-up comedy community in the greater Boston region. Welcome, Dan. Say hi to our audience. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Harry. Thanks, Helen. I'm uh, excited to talk about comedy. So I guess the first thing for you is when and how did you start to find your passion for comedy and especially stand-up comedy? Uh, I wanted to be a comedian since I was like a little kid. Um, my dad owned a record store in the 70s uh, in Kenmore Square in Boston. And so I grew up with comedy albums, listening to them. And, you know, I've wanted to do it since I was just, you know, really a little kid. Like people say they want to grow up and be doctors or firemen. I think at 12, I was like, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian when I grow up. Um, which sounds pretty crazy, So, but I'm very lucky and uh, it's been a lot of hard work and um, unfortunately, the pandemic has brought it to a standstill, but that's okay. I'll, Were I'll there people back. that you really looked up when you grew up? Sure. I, uh, I like Steve Martin. Steve Martin is uh, the reason I'm a comedian. His album uh, called A Wild and Crazy Guy, I heard that album as a little kid, and that was it for me. Um, also, I, I watched a lot of uh, Robin Williams and... Um, a lot of uh, Jewish comedians as well, uh, Jackie Mason, and um, yeah, a lot of old comedians. Uh, when did you start really practicing it, start performing it? Oh, okay. Uh, well, yeah, um, 16 years ago, I was, uh, I used to be a teacher, a public school teacher, yeah. Yeah. and uh, I had a, I was at a meeting once, I made this girl laugh, and she goes, you're really funny, you should be a comedian. And I said, you know what, I always wanted to do that, I always wanted to try to do stand-up. And she was involved in theater herself, and she goes, well, actually, I know this club called the Comedy Vault, and uh, there's an amateur night on Sundays, and uh, the rule is you have to bring two paid guests to watch you, and they give you five minutes. Oh. So I went down to the club, and uh, with a friend of mine, we were going to start comedy together, and um, we uh, met the person, and then the next week, I did my first set, 
And uh, that was uh, April 4th, 2004. So 4404. Yeah. So that was, I was going to ask, well, what was your first open mic experience? But I think you just answered it. Yeah, it was five minutes. I did really well. And it, you know, uh, made me want to do it again. So I, I went back the next week and uh, just started doing every Sunday night. And then eventually I learned about the whole subculture of stand up and that there was other shows and other places to perform. And it, uh, it, it led to a career in stand up comedy. Uh, but, you know, again, it's like it took, a it took a while to get there. I'm curious about how does your style change in the 16 years? That's a good question. Um, I, need, I was very, uh, everybody was always critical of me talking too fast when I started. And I've slowed down immensely. So uh, just being more comfortable, more confident, um, knowing that I'm funny. And then sometimes there's times where I'm not funny. But I think when you start, when you have a bad show, you don't do comedy for a long time. You just, you're like, oh, that sucked. I'm never doing stand-up again. And now, if I don't do well on a show, I immediately think, ooh, I, I need to go up tonight. Another, I do another show tonight. Or tomorrow. When's the next time? So, yeah, just more, more confidence. And uh, my style, I think, just embracing that I talk very fast and making that work for me. So, I think it's, that, uh, that... It's one of those high-energy styles? Uh, maybe. More like I just talk fast. That's true. So uh, I remember asking a comedian his advice. I said, he's a great comic. And I said, uh, Kevin Knox. And I said, they want me to talk slower. I don't know how to do that. And he said, I want you to talk faster. What he really was saying was just be yourself and find your voice. You think like uh, you act slightly different on stage, on Zoom, and in your daily life. I think when you start performing and listen to you, you have that high energy right there on stage. But uh, when you're giving us these stand-up classes, you seem to chill a little bit. But what are you like in real daily life? I think stand-up, I'm not doing an hour, and I'm not doing 45-minute sets, which really allows me to pace myself and go slower. In Zoom, I have to, you've got to be very quick. It depends. It depends on the pace and the rhythm of the audience and how they respond to the jokes. I think a good crowd and a good audience, if I'm high energy and they're high energy, you know, I'm trying to match the energy of the audience. So sometimes if an audience is very slow or low energy, my comedy, go, I'll, I'll go a lot slower. That's interesting. Uh, you mainly perform in Boston or around the greater Boston area? Mostly in New England. Mostly in New England. Yeah. And what have you found most special of this audience? I would assume the audience... Uh, either the population or the generation of people or the different race composing of the audience would be very different for LA, New York, and greater Boston area. So what do you find so special about this audience over here? Great question. I love New England audiences because I just feel like uh, they get, um, they just get me. And I don't know, they're smarter audiences, a little bit more comedy savvy there's a good history of comedy here in New England, so I feel they know what's good and what's not. Um, there's great places in L.A. and New York and every place, too, but uh, I like the uh, comfort of my own bed. I don't want to travel anywhere. <laughs> and especially right now, um, recently, I know you just got more chances to 
perform on stage, but how has COVID impacted the industry and impacted you in general? Well, I mean, it's a complete standstill. All of entertainment is at a standstill. Uh, That's right. So, um, I mean, we're using Zoom and we're trying our best on Zoom and outdoor shows, but um, it won't be what it was until we have a, a vaccine and effective treatment. From that first open mic experience to what got you here, you're like a pretty pretty famous comedian. Oh, uh, thank the, you. I, I, I don't feel yeah. I don't feel that way, but it, I was never after fame. I was just after a career. After well, you made it into a career, right? What you mostly do right now these days, I would say you you could say yourself uh, you're like a full time uh, stand up comedian, but sure. that must have taken you a lot of time and work from those 16 years and we're especially curious about uh your family acceptance of the job since you previously were a teacher so how did mm. your parents like it let's just talk about my parents because i don't have a wife or kids or or, <laughs> or daughters but uh very supportive very supportive did they affect you in some way maybe there were just people with humor all the time they like yeah yeah things. they definitely they introduced me to humor it's their fault. It's their fault. Uh, you know, I, I watched uh, shows Saturday Night Live and uh, Living Color. These are shows, you know, from the 90s. And uh, The Simpsons, uh, Seinfeld. Uh, I watched all those shows with my parents. So okay. Growing up, uh, I grew up in a Jewish household where humor is very, uh, it's, it's just, it's just the, you learn about stand-up comedy just naturally. So... Um, and humor in general, not just stand-up. Um, so uh, they always knew I was funny and were, you know, very behind me the, the entire time. Uh, I'm going to share one of my personal favorites. Uh, so have you heard about the Bill Burr Philly rant? Where he of course, of course. <laughs> roasted a bunch of, roasted the whole city of Philly. And of course, also it's, it's legendary from like a pure stand-up comedy perspective it was like a historic performance but it was funny and it left a mark in the whole field and uh, i was just thinking what was your worst audience experience we know there's a lot of things going on in the u.s and you might have jokes prepared for just a general audience but uh, either the liberal or the conservative ones they accept it differently so what has been your best or worst audience experience so far Worst audience experience is anytime uh, talking to uh, elderly. So anybody like 80 years old and above. <laughs> What's bad about it? Well, uh, you know, my, I talk very fast, so it's hard for them to uh, hear me. And, uh, <laughs> and then the opposite would be children. That's not the best audiences either. So those are usually the worst kinds of shows, if I'm being honest. I, I like my age gap, you know, where... You know, 25 to 55. That's my favorite. You get it. Like, anytime you go into a show and you see only gray hair, it's going to be a problem. My comedy is, uh, my jokes aren't for those crowds, you know. It's, uh, it's hard to talk about certain issues with certain age groups. Um, that's, that's true, for sure. I mean, I was saying uh, you feel very different when you're teaching the students versus when you're on stage, right? Like, uh, I, love, I, I love teaching students. Specifically students, like I also teach at Improv Boston, which is a little bit more adult. Yeah. 
and I actually get more out of um, students. And again, specifically MIT students, because you guys love to learn, and that's what makes great classes. Uh, what doesn't make good classes is when people take a class thinking they're going to become actual comedians after they graduate the class. There are these types of people. Yeah, well, I, they're looking as an as a you know an, another form of income or career, and it's very hard. It's very hard to become a comic. Um, I like teaching students because they're just naturally curious about getting better at the actual craft of stand-up rather it being a career choice. What do you think makes it so difficult to become a comedian? Like you're just like ripping people's dream out right now. I mean, you have to do a lot of things if you want to be a comedian. You have to have a podcast. You have to do um, different kinds of shows, non-traditional stand-up shows. You might have to perform sketch comedy with your friends and put that out on YouTube and different platforms. You might have to teach stand-up classes uh, or uh, do extra work and movie. You have to do lots of different things if you'd like to a career in comedy. A career in stand-up alone is very hard. You have to, you, if you just want to do stand-up only, it's almost impossible. Can you tell, tell us more about how does the business work? Like, who are the major players in the comedy and, uh, industry? Well, I mean, to be if you just want to be stand-up, there's like the three C's. There's college work, there's corporate work, and there's cruise, cruises, working cruise ships. That's the old way of comedy. Now, podcasting, you can make money off podcasting. You can make money off selling sketches and writing for TV. Um, but if you just want to do only stand-up, traditional stand-up... Without doing any of that other stuff, it's really colleges, performing for colleges, again, cruise work, and then corporate gigs. Um, one of the things I found was quite interesting, or slightly moving into our, you know, like general understanding of comedy itself, sure. is that uh, stand-up comedians, or comedians in general, they're all really great observers of our daily life. Comedians really focus on our daily pain points and add a twist of humor into it. The question for me is actually, for comedy these days, do we still prefer to have a point? Like people want to express certain things, their thoughts, quite a deep point, or is just being funny enough for comedy itself? I think both. I think both. It's, it's important to have a message and jokes too, but also I kind of like jokes that don't have a message, that are just funny. That kind of works. I mean, I've seen people do those like a really... Um, lewd sex jokes they could be really funny uh, while some people still prefer to make a point about maybe like money pressure or relationships in general seen both sure I, yeah i like both of them i think i do both of those things i don't really do political comedy ever That's, that was never my goal what's the reason for it you just started avoiding it from the start I, or i'm, I'm not smart enough to do political jokes honestly uh there is a risk factor with that i was gonna say uh well it's not me saying it. A lot of comedians say it. <laughs> like political correctness is making comedy more and more difficult these days. And I was almost starting to miss like uh, George Carlin. He passed away sort of early, but I was going to say, if he were still here in 2020, he would love it. <laughs> right. I know. There's so many comics that have passed away that I would love to hear their jokes now about 2020. 
it's too bad you felt i, I almost feel like whenever uh we tried to add like any like political elements in the comedy uh in one of the sets mm-hmm. it makes you become a little bit more audience focused and uh you have to almost like attend to your audience uh make sure that they aren't offended in some way ha- has this ever affected your writing in some way no not really not really yeah. again i just write whatever i think about i don't think about topics unless something comes to me um i like telling jokes that everybody can get no matter what that's what i that's my the most important thing to me what is a writing routine like really always i'm always i, I have a, a fixed time where i at one o'clock i always dedicate that time to writing but i write in the morning i'll write at night whenever i'm inspired um but i try to dedicate at least an hour a day where i can focus on listening to my sets that i do and then writing after i listen i I don't sit down and write jokes i listen to my performances and then i write off of those performances Wait, can you elaborate a little bit on what do you mean by you listen to your previous performances and you write off those Yeah, so that's like by listening to yourself, it gets your it gets you motivated to write new lines and new edits and new reworkings of jokes. And I can only really do that if I'm listening to my earlier recording. I, I don't sit down and think, "Oh, let's write some jokes today." Um, I'll jot down ideas during the day, mm-hmm. take those ideas to the stage or the Zoom shows, and uh, wh- then riff and improvise my way through the material with what I thought about in my head. And then the next day I'll listen to it and I'll think, Oh, that's how I want to say things. And I'll write it out. So yeah, I have to perform to write. I can't just write by itself. There's, there's one thing I wanted to share, right? So why I took your class, uh, it was, of course, it was during this quarantine time. Everything was kind of tough. The one really thing that shocked me was uh, all these news I received during the quarantine time about like COVID, about like uh, BLM movements, about like uh, also like presidential campaigns. It felt too much, too much for me. It almost felt like uh, the news I received were just stories like people were passing on to me. And just right. that one one great moment that hit me was, why can't, if this is true, if these are just stories told by other people to me, why can't I become like a content creator myself? And that was one of the moments we tried to, we thought about launching a podcast. And also a moment for me to think about how I could improve my ways of delivering a message to people. So that's, that's why I took the class. And right. uh, I was just thinking, In like the modern age these days, as you said, people used to only rely on if you were a stand-up comedian, you only did stand-ups. Maybe there was college, maybe there was corporate, maybe there were cruise ships. But these days, uh, things are more spread through like uh, modern media. And even things like Netflix or TikTok, like there's Netflix specials. Uh, those are probably more like television production type of things, but TikTok or Instagram or even just Twitter. Uh, these are more like social media platform things. Have you ever thought about having your own platform create like 15 to 20 second short sets? I tried that. It, uh, I'm too old for TikTok. In, 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 in what way? 
into it, 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 that's not uh, tw- TikTok for me feels it's very you know twenty year olds. No offense, and that's that's great. I, I, again, my my goal was never to um, to get a following or having more exposure. I just really like how jokes work by themselves. I just that's all I really I'm, I was ever after. Um, a byproduct of that is yeah, maybe you can get a following or start different ideas but at the essence i just really just like telling jokes only which is unfortunate that kind of limits my exposure and i understand that but i don't care (laughs) it was fan i was never after fans i was just after uh, paying my rent in bills uh i saw one of these like uh just short videos on tiktok it was a guy i think he was in his 50s and he made a joke about uh our we're generation X and we were made for TikTok. Like we practice for life for it. Sure. You, you guys can't imagine what our wives as kids were. And you just describe how crazy it was. And I just feel like TikTok, while mostly the users are 20 year olds, like people like you with experience with comedy and great humor can make that platform, make really good use of that platform. Agreed. I have two clips on TikTok of routines with subtitles um but i deleted the app after i I found sort of no use for uh maintaining that i'd rather use twitter twitter is the only social media i enjoy because it's the written word and uh that's that's really what i enjoy the most i use instagram and facebook for promotion but if i didn't have to promote i probably wouldn't have an instagram or a facebook I would probably just have Twitter only. Uh, do you have anything like company or association for comedians that you can work together? There's no union for comedians, unfortunately. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, we don't get health insurance. Uh, there's no retirement plan. Uh, really, uh, if you want to do stand-up, you might have to do it till you die. Uh, so... Um, there's a great okay. network, though, of comedians, you know, that that you're able to use through, um, you know, word of mouth and talking to other comedians. That's very supportive and is a great scene, but unfortunately it doesn't have any uh, stability as far as uh, a real job. Although you say that there's not like a, you know, like a great union overshadowing the whole thing. I feel like in the stand-up community, People generally know each other uh, quite well, and sure. especially they. Your reputation is online when you like, you know, like steal a joke, and people realize it. I'll give you an example of how stand-up isn't that important. Uh, and so when the pandemic hit, all the comedy clubs were like, "Oh no, what are we going to do? We need to have fundraisers so we can support the waitresses and the bartenders." <laughs> Of the clubs, because they're going to be out of work. Yeah. But nobody really said, what about supporting the comedians? Yeah, so that, that gives you joke. an example. That, uh, that's a joke itself. Right. Sure. And as of now, you, you just want to, you know, just keep on, keep on doing this. Any, like, maybe, like, long-term plans besides, like, just performing and also teaching? Yeah, uh, I think my long, I just, I just like to get better. That's my long-term plan. I'd like to get better at comedy. And 
I think that's that's always but what I've been after. Um, I, I love teaching stand up. I, I like teaching. People get it confused. People, I don't like teaching how to become a comedian. I like teaching about stand up comedy. Yeah, yeah, you made that pretty clear. Uh, yeah, in our class. again, it's so hard. It's so hard to do it. So you can just do comedy though. You can just do it. But if you want it to become a career, it it really uh, you really lose sight of what's important when you when you uh, I think do all these other things that aren't stand up. Just my opinion. What do you think made the difference for um, comedians or and like real actors? I feel like if there were a systematic like industry type of thing, just like how they have it for Hollywood and actors, sure, would have like so, the screen thing the for, Screen Actors Guild. Yeah, sort of. It's like a whole. It's like the movie industry, but it would be just called like you know like stand up industry or just comedians industry. It would be great. Oh my god, that would be fantastic. Yeah, it made me wonder what's the like the big difference because when when you guys perform, when you guys on TV, you always get like the great attention, and sometimes you even shine more than like a lot of like superstars. I could definitely, I definitely believe so. Sure. And I was just wondering what made the big difference. Well, I mean that's a great that's a great perspective that you have there, Harry. I mean, not a lot of people think that, but uh, if you love stand up, then you love it it more than you know acting or. Um, so being a celebrity, uh, it's just—it's not that important for people that aren't fans of it. You know, stand-up can only go so far. You know, a lot of people think stand-up has something to do with show business, and it's—it kind of does, but it's very—it's at the very bottom of show business. There's you know movie stars, and there's like stand-ups way down here. Yeah, I—I I think it, it reminds me again about the. About the set I had in class, where I made the comparison between stand-up comedians and just like startup owners. Sure. So number one, they all pay great attention to your pain points in daily life, and they do something about it. And uh, number two, I think it was about um, not getting the exact feedback you needed to improve your performance. Right. Right. And I think we're gonna add number three to it. There's like a there's like a big gap between the best ones in the industry and just like people really um, trying hard. Because also sure. in startups, there's probably only like three percent of people or companies that ever make it big. That's right. And there's a, in my 16 years, I've seen a lot of people not quit, and a lot of people give up comedy. Yeah, that's why I like the idea when you said uh, during our first class about I like teaching these MIT students. I believe you guys will all go to become or have like professional jobs but if you just like this you like this on the side uh it's like a personal interest or a hobby right I a hobby right you can great. just do it as a hobby and uh, and really enjoy it without thinking of it as a career because the, again when you think of it as a career it's very hard and it does it's, it, it takes you out of the creative process when you think about it as a career um i, I don't know that's just my experience I, I um you know there's people who work creatively on movies and tv and they write for and, and they're being creative and if they enjoy that that's great but i i love just getting on stage and uh nobody really wants to go on you know just go on stage and see me over and over again like a tv show would now that you mention it like once you have this as like a real job or you're full-time into it yeah 
making fun things for other people to laugh at could be burdensome, right? You, you, you start to lose that creative under pressure. I need maybe a new set um, in, in a week and I just can't find out how to write one. I have no inspiration. Have you ever have one of those moments? Yeah, my entire year of getting ready for Last Comic Stand, thinking of the routine I was going to do for the show, which is 90 seconds. Um, uh -huh. And I wasn't able to really work on jokes the way I, uh, I enjoy to. Uh, so um, as soon as that was over, I was very relieved. Yeah, I think uh, it's most of those tough things. Once one of your you know hobbies becomes the thing, your bread and butter, your perspective changes. And uh, that's, that's why I'm always skeptical about the phrase or word where people say um, you, should, you should get a job where you love the job, you have great passion in it, and that's the danger in it, right? If you, if you love it that much, you have great passion, of course, it'll work really well. But if things don't go that well, <laughs> what you lose is you might lose the job and you might also lose a hobby. It's true. It's true. Um, it's important to have a job. If you want to do stand-up, I would say, it's important to have a job that allows you to do stand-up. So it has to accommodate um, long nights. Um, but I always say that when I, when I, if you treat it like a job, it will become your job if you're willing to devote a lot of time to it. Also, one thing I was really curious, we're just like chatting right now, when you were performing. Um, I did have one open mic experience. I also did it on Facebook. And uh, interesting thing was most of the audience were female. And there were another uh, open mic performer. He had a joke about girlfriends. He was basically roasting his ex. And that was not very well received. And I think it was not because how offensive he was to his ex. It was just that the female audience did not like the, these type of jokes. So is, this some, is there something to learn from this? Yeah, you have to know your audience. Another thing that came into my mind was when we see this, uh, there's quite a few Netflix specials around. You can just also watch some of them on YouTube. I feel like for the comedians that are already famous, uh, I feel like when they just talk, people just start laughing. Right. And that got me confused uh, because what they were speaking weren't even a joke. There was no punchline. I knew the punchline was not there. The punchline was coming out later. But what do you think made that big difference? Like just because they're famous? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's their audience. They can say whatever they want. Their audience is behind them no matter what, which is very nice to have that. I actually kind of like the inconspicuous comedy. They don't know who you are, so you better be funny. Easy to say when a lot of people don't know who I am. Yeah. You think this might have come from like uh, just because the audience that came for those specials, they were fans of the performers. So yeah. they have... They, they expect things and they just love him or her just in general. Or you could have also been like, I just say, I'm just saying for television production, uh, we see a lot of, uh, I will almost call, almost call them like professional audience.
if you got someone someone ready three two one laugh and you right. will see a laugh and pe- stop and like people stop I, i've seen that right and like also, I, I like i make my parents laugh so do i want an entire audience of just my parents um nah. yeah sure if it's if you like the sound of laughter sure but i like to i like a challenge there's also there's also this thing um you said you always want to uh, improve yourself, so I'm wondering where are you getting feedback? Do you have any mentors or audiences that give you feedback? No, not on a daily basis. Um, again, because I can't go out and do stand-up every night. Uh-huh. Audiences are my... Um, it's ha- harder now because, again, we're in the middle of a pandemic, so I'm easy on myself, and uh, I don't have those expectations of working on my craft so much right now. It is for for me. It's all almost a way of doing storytelling, right? There was there was one one person that I quite looked up to, at least from a career perspective. Um, how he how he chose college, how he did his career path, and one very special experience on his resume on his resume of life was he did uh, he was like an improv artist. He had his own. Uh, in pro performance club in college and what really he benefited from that was um the ability to either you know i'll call it perform in front of an audience deliver a story or deliver a message Mm -hmm. and for me i think stand-up comedians have this special gift as well agreed i agree well the thing was uh i was saying in that set right Instead of pitching to uh, investors as startup owners, they probably should hire Senna Comedian Fortis. Well, there's a career path I didn't uh, never thought about. Uh, not that it's absolutely a good fit or necessary, but I just felt like um, those some of these skills that I learned, at least as a student here at MIT or through practicing with the group with you every Tuesday, um, I felt... I learned a lot from it. Great. Oh, that's nice to hear. I think there's definitely a career in uh, having um, creative arts activities at colleges more um, through Zoom during a pandemic. So I'm after that career path right now. I think that could be, uh, you know, I I know a lot of friends who teach comedy. And I think uh, I'm trying to think right now about how can I take this to other colleges um, with a grant-funded program that would be able to employ a comedian to teach a fun stand-up, just like MIT is doing. I'm trying to right. figure out, is, is there a way I could do that at other schools? That would be a career choice right now because I can't make my money in stand-up. I have to figure out a different path right now during the pandemic. Uh, do you remember how many people uh, applied for this whole program? Uh, you said there were like a really long wait list, right? There was, yeah. I mean, I'm, right now I'm currently teaching four classes a week. And so, I think like just, four, four classes like ours. Yes, exactly. Oh, Tuesday to Friday, and I believe there's a, still a wait list of ten people. I believe. Oh, this is great. Um, yeah, no, yeah, it's, I, I'm very lucky. I'm very happy. Uh, it keeps my creative brain going, and uh, I love teaching. Uh, I think I think your plan could work, right? If you reach out to like other schools and. Uh, I wish I knew how to do that. I don't know how to do that. Uh, 
you would have to know, uh, you know, the, I think, well, I mean, what I would like to do is get um, some great feedback from the class that we're doing now and uh, some testimonials and, um, you know, we're going to have you guys fill out a survey at the end. And so we have some kind of hardcore data Yeah, and, uh, you know, just try to network to other schools uh, again, like, you know, you got to meet, I got to meet more people to, that are involved in that. So, um, Helen, you go to Harvard. Let's, uh, let's talk. Or you went to Harvard, right? Is your, do you yeah, think Harvard would be interested in a stand up comedy class? Yeah, I think so. There would be a lot of people interested in it. Hmm. So like I, the, uh, the grant that funds our class at MIT, the, what is it? Mind heart. Um, yeah. Maybe there's a grant at uh, Harvard that does the same thing, offering students uh, cool Zoom classes for just mental health. Because I feel uh, that could so I would be like a to way pursue to... that. I, you know, I'm trying to think about how I can do that now. That could be a way to shape it. I guarantee you Harvard has more funds than MIT on these things. So you should have no problem. I just need to find those. the right people. Yes, but like you had a good point there. Once you have taught this class, you have you have this experience teaching, and uh, you have you have data, you have feedback, um, and you probably will also get a reference from like the either the Meinhard Fund or the people that you were in contact with at MIT, and they could refer you to Harvard. I think that would I be, think that would be a fantastic idea. And just even like. Universities like Boston University, Northeastern. There's so like, many schools and there's so many students learning remotely that I think this is a great idea. I just need more people to like sort of do the outreach. I'll teach the classes, but I need other people to really go through the um, networking and the marketing of it. And um, so I'm currently just trying to think about how, how I'm going to execute that. Yeah. Actually, sounds for me. It sounds like a good plan. Like, because uh, it's not only setup; it's a lot of uh, different fields. Like, for example, my myself, I work. My research is mostly in like I would say computer science, machine learning, or artificial intelligence, and it has a problem with like applying to industry and solving real life problems itself. It's mm. awesome technology. You got good algorithms. It's fancy, at least on paper or in labs. But in real life, it has a, faces a lot of challenges. And many researchers in that field, instead of like continuously tackling the technical challenges, they move on to career paths where they form their own like <laughs> educational company or boot camps. And it's right. like teaching people for programming, coding, and data science. So I think it's a really good alternative thing to think about. No, I, uh, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to wrap my head around it. And hopefully when we get to the end of these classes and we have our graduation shows, I can make a sort of a clip reel of the highlights of the class and use that to market to other schools. Also a thing I feel could be very supportive of that idea would be like since you have four classes of students, I feel it would be really good if uh, there was a way we could still keep in touch with each other, uh, not only within our own group on Tuesday, but also just gather all the students together. Right. And uh, instead of, um, 
you guys always have to go on a Facebook to seek out to see seek out for like an open mic opportunity. We'll just hold like open mics regularly between the group itself. So once yeah, once we have the student group, at least most of them here at MIT, um, we can support each other sure. and also support your idea of like teaching stand-up in this region and you'll yeah. gradually add more student groups from other schools into this. I'm hoping to teach again in the next cycle of grant funding. So we'll see if that, if that, if that happens. And then uh, I actually teach with a separate grant in January um, at MIT. Um, so yeah, trying to figure out uh, how I can make this, this a career until stand-up can come back after the pandemic ends. <laughs> so so in, the, in the winter, so that's the IAP period. That's right. That's right. It's a grant specifically for that period, that time between the uh, semesters. It's definitely, it's definitely a tough time, but uh, I'm glad you, you're, you know, finding something else to do, but also enjoying a lot. Definitely, definitely. The comfort from, I don't have to leave my apartment. It's pretty cool. That's also true. I don't have to find parking <laughs> at MIT. Parking's a nightmare down there. That's also true. And uh, I guess like students are enjoying themselves too. I, I, I can tell from our, from our whole group, we're learning, but at the same time, just enjoying the whole, just going with the flow and enjoying the whole experience. That's awesome. Thank you. That's nice to hear. I think they were right about the mental health thing. <laughs> uh, people were in that lockdown mood and, uh, um, just really bored wanted someone else to talk to and also you know showcase themselves speak speak up for themselves right i don't know if you realize this but i've been observing uh, our our whole group a little bit just every time we record the zoom meeting i go back to look at the zoom recordings great you could see people's faces gradually light up over That's the right. past it's, few weeks it's probably the only zooms that people are actually enjoying so much remote learning is uh, exhausting, and uh, I'm, I'm glad to offer it as a uh, as a nice you know side project where people can just have fun. I like you know I just think I enjoy s smart and savvy audiences and teaching smart and savvy people. Yeah, um, I think uh, at least my experience trying to do stand up. Uh, I'm trying to consistently throw throw away a little bit of trying to be like you know too smart or just say almost like teach my audience some about something that I observe and I thought you guys never saw it, it and put more of a fun factor uh, inside of it. I mean, it has to be fun, right? If your whole set is not fun, yes, you have to have fun might, the entire time. Might, yeah, if, if you're not having fun, then it's just work. Yeah, I, the set my uh, one I did this week, it might be at least I felt it was like sort of deep in some way, but it wasn't funny, and that was like an issue or a lesson to be learned. Sure, sure. There's nothing better than learning. I mean, I'm still learning. Sixteen years in about stand up, and uh, I hope that never ends. Cool. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you guys Thank for you having so me, and I'll see you in class uh, soon, Harry. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Ellen. Awesome, guys. Take care. And to our dear audience, please find Dan Crone on his Instagram or personal website, 
dancrone.com. Come watch more of his performances offline when you're around Boston. And we will see you next time on Find Your Niche. Sort of in between girlfriends right now. That's assuming I'm going to get another girlfriend. <laughs> That's you assuming that I previously had a girlfriend. <laughs> Relationships are hard. I just want to hold her hand while I cross the street and check my phone and use her like a seeing eye dog. Maybe I don't know what relationships are, actually. <laughs> I was out with this girl the other day, or the other night, whatever. It's not even true. <laughs> But, uh... She goes, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were a friend of mine. I was like, that's the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me.